This is the Non-Typical Nation podcast with your hosts, Brody Teal and Eric Labrie. Let's talk hunting and absolutely everything else that goes with it. Welcome back, guys, to a brand new Non-Typical Nation podcast. I'm your host, Brody Teal. We've got Eric Labrie with us as well. And we've got another special guest with us today. We've got Doug McMahon with Skinner Creek Hunts. This is the guy I did my lynx hunt with back in February. We had an absolute blast, and I figured I got to have you on, Doug. Doug, thanks for coming on. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate stealing a bit of your time on, uh, on this Friday evening. No problem at all. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah, awesome. To, so uh, be part of the non-typical nation here. Well, it's our pleasure, man. It's Friday evening in the Chilkootin region of British Columbia. Were you? Uh, what were you doing today? What's going on this weekend? How is the fire situation there? Um, what's your summer been looking like? Uh, summer's been uh, kind of probably a little bit average. We got our hot spell just like you guys did probably early in the year in June and lots of fires, nothing. We've had a couple close ones, but they're extinguished pretty quick. Um, you know, uh, right now, cause there's not really, the borders aren't open really yet. I mean, they are to some degree, but it's tough getting in. We really aren't doing a whole lot of guiding at this point. So kind of swinging a hammer and paying the bills by working at a lodge, uh, building some uh, ex- expansion, some cabins and what have you. And, uh, fortunately it's right on the Chilco river, which is, a uh, kind of a world famous trout fishery. So every once in a while, just like after work today, I went and snuck out for a bit and almost, almost didn't quite make the, <laughs> the podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, it's been good. Um, looking forward to the borders getting open and, and getting some clients to cross the line, you know, and, and uh, I think everybody in the guide industry is looking forward to that day. We're going to actually start working again. Yeah, it's painful. It's been a painful couple of years. That's for sure. And so the border right now, it's, yeah, it's not no quite doubt. open, but it's open to vaccinated um, non-residents coming in. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, vaccinated can come in, but it's still a process, right? I mean, they okay. have to get vaccinated. They have to get tested prior. They got to get, there's a random testing when they cross. Uh, then they have to show up with a quarantine plan just in case they happen to get tested and they test positive. So it's a bit of a hassle and they got to get tested to go back. So, wow. you know, our Canadian healthcare system is, you know, sometimes like a third world country, I think, as far as where we can get tested and how often we can get tested and what it costs us. So, yeah, it's anyways, it, it is open to some degree, but. Uh, yeah, without sure. a doubt. Um, so you've noticed that guys are sort of just holding off and just waiting, hoping that things open up a little bit more as sometimes progress. Um, I know Eric's in the same situation. He's got an outfitting business here in Alberta. He's got some moose tags and whatnot. And uh, guys are just holding off. And some guys aren't getting the shot. They are sort of just taking the chance and just going to wait, hoping they open right up. But um, Well, the guys I've talked to, there's, you know, there's a lot of guys that just don't want to get the shot yet. And then there's some people that have got the shot, but they just don't want to be the first people to go over the border. And, you know, a lot of people don't know what it's like to get over the border and how much of a hassle it is. So you'd add these extra days on, on the front end of your travel and then on the back end of your travel, and then you might get held up. You might have to quarantine. 
you know, there's, and then you got to now in the States, you got to quarantine on the way back. It's a lot when you just want to go hunting for a week. Yeah, Eric, absolutely. It's, it is tough and, and nobody really wants to be the guinea pigs. It seems like, you know, I do have a lot of guys calling to, to hunt links this winter. Cause I think it's going to probably, you know, probably open up by then, but I mean, the way things are going, they could shut us right back down again. And it's a kind of a scary thought that, you know, there's going to be a lot of outfitters that are going to completely miss their fall season. And of course, if it rolls into fall, there's a good chance it might, um, might roll into winter as well. Yeah. And so that's, that's two full years in a row. That's crazy. Um, but let's not dwell on this. I'm curious. So you're, uh, you're known to a lot of guys. I've talked to a few guys here in Alberta as an incredible houndsman, um, you know, especially with uh, lynx, cougars, what came first? Did the dogs come first or did the guiding came, come first? Um, where did you get started? And uh, yeah, was it an obsession with, with hunting with the dogs or was it uh, just an obsession with hunting that got you into the guiding industry first? Yeah, in, interesting story uh, how that all came about. <clears throat> when I moved out of Vancouver and we bought our place up here, um, I planned when I moved out of the lower mainland, I was going to get a hound and I was going to catch my own cougar. You know why? I don't know, but it was a goal that I always had. Okay. Didn't know anything about it. Didn't know anybody that had dog, you know, and it was, it was kind of interesting. So we, uh, <clears throat> anyhow, I, I stumbled into a hound that didn't know a thing. And, and, uh, so we kind of learned a little bit for the first year or two. And, and, um, it was a bit of a struggle. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but uh, anyhow, I finally, after a year or two, had her somewhat trained and we were finally out with two other pups I had got. They weren't hounds, but they were other two other pups that were meant more to hang around the house. And we decided we'd go chase our first cougar on our own. And anyhow, old Ginny, little walker hound that I had, my first one, um, first hound on her, first cougar on her own gets killed. Oh, oh no. So, <laughs> Pretty poor start, you know, we just ran into a big mean Tom and he laid an ambush down and, and tore up one dog and then ended up killing Ginny. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I persevered and, and got another dog and, and I got a second dog. And by that point I was starting to catch a few cats and, and um, the local outfitter, which I initially, well, well finally a few years later ended up buying out. I uh, never really planned on going that direction, but um, wanted me to guide a few hunts. So I guided a few hunts, picked up another dog and had some tough going at the start. You know, I lost, uh, seemed like every year I lost a, another dog to wolves or to cougars or what have you. And so, yeah, that's, you know, it was interesting. I just had this thing in my, be in my bonnet thing that I wanted to catch my own cougar and uh, with my own dog. And here I am. I mean, it's uh, not often. I mean, with COVID, we've cut down way back. On, on hounds but I mean we've had as many as you know 24 hounds in the kennels and uh you know and and have made a bit of a name for myself I'm not sure how that came about but it did and uh yeah it's been it's been good it's been a learning curve and and the thing is you, you never stop learning right every batch of dogs is a little different um you know I breed all my own stuff and you know some some breeds breedings go really well um some you wouldn't make that cross again uh, but it's, you know, it takes time and it's, um, 
you know, you can only have so many litters. I never want to have one female have too many litters. It's too hard on their bodies. And so I try to keep it down to two or three. So you really want to be careful when you're doing your breeding and, and not to overuse your dogs. But uh, yeah, like I say, still, still learning. I mean, there's a ton to learn. Um, it's uh, every dog reacts different behaviors, you know, how to train them for, to, to respect you as a hunter, to respect the animals, to listen to what they're told to do, to, to come back when I beep them on their collars. I mean, it's, there's a lot, you know, a hound can learn that a lot of people don't really believe they're capable of, mm -hmm. but in my, you know, in my perspective, they can, they can learn just as much as a border collie can. It's, it's amazing. Right. I mean, you know, Brody, you hunted with my dogs a little bit and, and uh, we had a great hunt and, and I'm sure you saw that they were well behaved, you know, they were a pleasure to be around. And that's kind of what I, what I strive for. I don't want to be hollering at dogs and chasing around all night, trying to get them to come back and what have you. And, and you know, you hear these horror stories, you know, if, if it gets dark and I need my dogs to come back, I want to beep them with their collar and wait for them to come back to where I let them out. I mean, it's, um, who wants to be chasing them all, all over the mountain in the dark and the knee deep snow, right? Well, and it's, it's amazing to see their drive and how much they enjoy chasing these cats. I didn't see them hunt bears and that's something I want to do. I, I definitely want to hunt bears with you. If there's still an opportunity later on, it's something that I'm going to jump on, but just how excited and how motivated they are to hunt these links. Um, it was absolutely amazing. And then when things didn't quite go as planned and you know, whatever the cat got away and you had to call them off. I think the first one, those dogs were a few kilometers away from us and you just did a beep, not a shock, just a beep. Yeah. And they came coming right back to us. And it was absolutely amazing. Um, very, very, very cool. Uh, and, you know, I, I've said to a few guys, these dog hunts, what I've noticed, the hunt is equally or even more important to the dogs than it is to the guys hunting these animals. Like just the excitement those dogs get. And when they have that animal treat and when that animal hits the ground, um, it's, it was thrilling to me that I could even share that with the dogs, even though they did all the work. Um, it was very, very cool. Now I had a question though. Do you train the same way for cats as you do bears? Do you run the same dogs for cats and bears or do you change them up or how exactly does that work? Okay. Yeah. No, it, to make it a simple answer, I guess. Yeah, I do use both um, or all my dogs for bear and cats. Uh, obviously bears are a little bit different of a, of a prey animal because dogs are typically, you can't train them to want to chase bears. Okay. You either, they're either a bear dog or they're not. And, and that's, it's usually the most difficult thing. Most dogs will chase a cat, whether they chase it successfully or not, or fast or slow, or, you know, that's, that's a whole different topic. But, you know, when it comes to a bear, I don't know what it is. I mean, a cougar can easily kill a dog or kill a pack of dogs if it really wants to, where a bear really doesn't have that chance. But for some reason, I don't know if it's a size, 
or there's, you know, I, I have no idea, but some dogs are, are not good bear dogs. So that was probably something that I always strive for when I'm breeding is I, I want to see how many of that litter actually make true bear dogs. And it's not as, you know, there's a lot of guys I've hunted with a lot of different guys, hounds and, and they're, you know, a lot of them are okay bear dogs, but I always say, you don't know, even if you have a bear dog till you've treated a hundred bears. Wow. Cause that 99th bear could whip your dog and yeah. he never wants to go back. He never wants to see another bear again. And I've had a couple dogs like that. I, I had this one real sweetheart of a female, one of the best cat dogs I've ever owned. And she was great until about probably four years old. And so she had been on it four years. She probably would have been on a hundred to 150 bears treat. That's crazy. And I don't know what happened. She, she one hunt, she, she didn't get any holes in her. The bear didn't catch her. They didn't beat her up. Um, but from then on, if we got into a mean bear, she would just come back and find me. Wow. She never would stick it out. Right. And that was after 150 bears. You think that they'd be just ingrained in them that they would, but you know, they're not dumb. You know, they, you know, some of us get uh, in a hockey game, go into the corner with the big guy and get smashed. And then next shift we go back and get smashed again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Just how some of us are. And, uh, and that's with, with the dogs, right. I mean, you know, some of my best dogs have, you know, are just scarred right up. I mean, really scarred right up and they don't even, they don't hesitate. You know, they, they come running by you and they got a big patch of skin missing off them and, you call them back and, and they don't even want to go. They want to continue on. Right. And that happens time and time and time again. And unfortunately those are usually your best dogs. And a lot of times they don't live the longest either, but um, yeah, you've seen the way that they react, right? The dogs love what they're doing. Yeah. And, and the thing is at the tree, as you probably would have noticed, those dogs were so happy to have us at the tree for sure. Like they wanted to show off what they caught, right? It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't all about the animal in the tree. They wanted to make sure we knew that they had done a good job and, and um, wanted to get all the love and all the pats. And, and it's so much of what I do is about the dogs and our relationship, right? It's, um, yeah. you know, I would probably caught 300 links before I actually shot one. I've only ever shot one. And wow. uh, guys come to my way. I think you come to my house and says, where's your links? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> every hunter comes in right I, i've got a lot a lot of links you know probably more than than most anybody and um you know they just said you know everybody comes in and says where's your links i said you know i i, I have such respect for those animals i i've just never actually pulled the trigger on one until a couple years ago and uh i don't know how many times i had the gun loaded the safety off looking at a big tom up in the tree yeah. knowing that he's you know nine ten years old he passed his prime and let him go you know um i always figured it was going to be something real special that made me pull the trigger and i don't know what that was until the day that i had a group of six-month-old pups out and they trailed the lynx you know for a long time i'm sure that the older dogs could have made it look a little bit better but you know, they trailed it for, I don't know, miles, quite a few miles. And then they jumped this cat and it took them three, four miles to get the, the cat actually treed. And um, they'd been at it for a long time and they caught this cat and it was a big old Tom and, and I 
hiked in there and I was by myself. It was the last day of the season. All my hunters had gone home. And uh, I thought, you know, I should pull the trigger on this one just because the cats did such a good job. Our dogs did such a good job on this cat. Um, very, very young group of dogs, right? It's most yeah. dogs, a lot of dogs won't even chase a lynx. And then at six months to go through such a hard, hard track and a hard catch uh, to, to get it. And it was treating a really big fir tree. Okay. So way up top and they had, they located on the right tree. Um, I mean, it was just so textbook. I thought, boy, those dogs deserve to actually see what one of these actually smells like on the ground. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. so that's, that's what I did. Yeah. That's incredible. And we know it's been right around my 300. Wow. We noticed that those two younger dogs you had, um they led the way you know they were the ones that got uh joey's cat they were the first two to cross the road when that cat circled back around and i believe with mine as well they were sort of ahead of the other ones and they had uh had had got that one and they actually circled back to the other dogs if i remember correctly to bring them all in or to help help get them to help locate where that that cat was um but yeah that was impressive yeah that's exactly what happened i remember that one clear as day because because i mean i'm running some pretty good dogs you know and you know spider and tippy and pudding i yeah. mean they've caught good grief i don't know they probably caught 150 or 200 links right and then all of a sudden i got these two young dogs um that are half a mile ahead of everybody yeah and and i said man i, I think those dogs breed that lynx yeah. And they're just trying to figure out where it is. And so then they end up running back and they joined the, the other dogs and the, the other dogs came in and showed them which tree it was in. But yeah, interesting, you know, that uh, they can just get out and move and get those cats caught. You know, it's a, it's a learning deal for all those dogs. <clears throat> you know, it's, I have a lot of houndsmen from the States come up and bring their dogs out to catch links and they haven't been very successful. And I always say, well, don't blame it on the dogs. I mean, first of all, you don't have lynx dogs. It, it's a new smell. It's a new area. It's, um, you know, be happy that your dogs catch what you hunt, wherever you yeah. go. I mean, it, it's not about what animals they can catch. It's about what you hunt and if they're successful and if they make you happy. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's lots of dogs that come through here and, and lots of houndsmen that want to catch your lynx. And at the end of the day, I catch your lynx for them. Right. At, Cause their dogs can't quite do it. But if those dogs spent a season doing it, they could yeah. maybe do it. Right or you know multiple seasons they could probably do it and do it with some style but you know i always i said don't i sell a few hunts where guys actually just bring their own dogs and, and then i just put them with the guide but they mm -hmm. don't get to use my dogs right yeah and it's it's pretty pretty disheartening when your dogs can't catch one <clears throat> you know but the uh, thing with lynx is they're so light-footed, they walk on they top of that snow and they leave very little scent. So when it comes to, you know, lynx compared to, to cougar and especially compared to bear that leave a lot of oils and a lot of scent down, um, lynx, would you, is it fair to say that they're one of the tougher, toughest animals to track for dogs? Yeah, they, they are. Cause they do leave very little scent and that's what people, <clears throat> that's what people notice first off when they come up with their dogs and they catch cougars and bobcats and bears and everything else back down in the States. And they come up with the links and I'll get out and check a track. I'm like, boy, this is a hot track. And you put their dogs down on it and the dogs 
don't even want to follow it. And they say, no, that must be yesterday's track. I'm like, no, this is like so hot. Like this cat crossed in the last 15 minutes. And they like, no, no, my dog, he would bark if they were sent. And I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. should we try my dog? You know, and 10 minutes later, the cat's caught. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, and some dogs progress. I mean, some dogs, if people are willing to share and throw my dogs, their dogs into the mix, then they learn, right? Because I mean, it, lots, lots of times, I mean, we only hunted for what, three days or something. And yeah, three days. That was it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very long. And, and, got a few and but, I mean, we have some weeks where we'll catch eight or 10 of them, you know, in six days. And so a dog that's coming up here to visit can, can get a lot of experience. Yeah. You know, that could, that could take them two winters to catch of catching cats back home, whether it's bobcats or cougar or what have you, right. If you're just a weekend warrior and you don't get out much and you don't get good conditions, well, you might only catch a couple cats in a year. So all of a sudden you can come up here and, and throw your dogs in with mine and catch a bunch. Yeah. And, um, you know, we got good conditions. It's crazy how many you can, you can catch, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's, uh, I always tell tell guys that want to get into hounds or that are into hounds. I said, as long as they make you happy, as long as you're not frustrated when you go out and come home and then don't worry about it. Your dogs don't have to catch anything. They don't have to catch every cat you turn out on. They don't have to catch every bear. You know, I have standards that I like to keep my dogs catching at catch rates. And that's kind of what I breed to, to make sure they keep that high, high catch percentage. Um, but you know, in reality, everybody wants a high catch percentage, but I know guys that say, Oh yeah, I catch a hundred percent of what I turn out on. Well, okay. Well, hundred <clears throat> percent of what? Yeah. Like house cats. Like I don't, yeah. I don't know because you know, we've got a lot of stuff and I know a few houndsmen that are pretty darn good houndsmen. And I tell you, none of us would ever claim to catch everything. Sure. We want to catch a high percentage, you know, 85, 90%. Absolutely. Well, you're never going to catch everything. That just doesn't matter if it's a black bear, bobcat, cougar. You know, I always say, oh, cougars are given. I've, I've never not caught a cougar ever. And then one day I caught into a, a huge tom, really big tom. And it was late in the day. And I said, man, this is probably close to a day old. But I don't know where he's going. Like, this is a weird spot where it showed up. So I yeah. dumped my dogs out on it and they trailed him off till dark. I called him back at dark. I, I picked him up, started it again the next day. Wow. And it crossed two roads, but the, they plowed the roads and plowed over all the tracks. <clears throat> and the second road, I said, man, we are literally 30 minutes from killing this monster, Tom, right? Like, it was so fresh. And there was a parallel road and we, we got in there and the dogs were moving really good and all, and we pulled up and stopped the truck and, and they're 400 yards from us. And it sounded like the biggest mean bear. It was just a nut, straight out fight, right? Big wow. old Tom, he decided he was going to eat some dogs and they spent all afternoon fighting with this cat. Never treed once. Finally, he broke and ran. <clears throat> And I was about an hour and a half to get around to where he was. So we ended up, uh, we ended up going back around by this point. It's, it's well after dark. I got to pull my dogs off. The dogs cross the road. <clears throat> I pick them back up again. We start the third day. 
<laughs> and the third day that night, it's or the, that night of the second day, it snowed four or five inches. And we started the track right where I picked up the dogs, but it's now got four or five inches of snow in it. And they trailed it out to a main logging main, which was blown clear. I mean, there was just just nothing but gravel. Yeah. It, uh, whatever the wind had just taken all the snow off it. They trailed it for a couple miles down there, then dumped back into the timber and then went four more miles out of my guide area. <laughs> like mm-hmm. all told, they went 54 miles on that big tongue. Holy smokes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, miles. I mean, that's not in a straight line. Yeah, that's yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like a high a high uh, catch rate is great. Um, but the thing is, you, you know, you can't expect something in the high 90s or or 100, of course. But the thing with your area is you're going to release those dogs quite a bit. Like you're going to have a few opportunities to release on tracks that might be a day old or that day. Um, so there's going to be opportunity. Uh, your area, it didn't seem like you got pressured that hard with other houndsmen and other hunters. Um, actually, I think you mentioned that you almost never see other houndsmen in that area. Um, and so, you know, a high success rate is great, but even if a guy had like a catch rate of, you know, I would say 60, you know, that would mean that, you know, when every six times you release the dogs, you're going to catch four of those cats or whatever, right around there. So, you know, I would imagine even that's pretty darn good because the area just isn't pressured. Yeah, it's, I mean, out here, we don't get any pressure at all. Very, very, very little pressure. Yeah. And, you know, kind of the one, one guy that's out there all the time. Um, we're a long ways from the nearest town, right? It's two and a half hour drive uh, to the nearest town of any size, other than they're just mostly just uh, First Nations villages uh, between here and Williams Lake. So we don't get a lot of pressure and there is a fair amount of game. Uh, so, which also makes for good dog training. Yeah, it's roster sure. dog training. You know, I mean, we bear season. Sometimes we don't get out the driveway and the dogs strike and, you know, let them go. <laughs> Can you imagine? So it's, um, striking is when you, when we put them up on the box and they, and they're smelling for scent, right? They're smelling for scent, a bear track crossing the road. It could be a bear they're smelling even up on the hill somewhere. And um, so anyhow, that's when I say strike, that's what, that's what they're doing. They'll start barking when they smell the, the right prey. And they will also strike cats, but there's just so many more bears around. They're more sent to a bear. So it has to be a real fresh cougar track and, and a smoking hot lynx track for them to, to actually chase something during bear season other than a bear. So, for sure. So um, you know, talking about bears, we actually got so many grizzlies. around. I was going to ask about the grizzly bear situation. Ahead, What's that like? They shut the season down, yeah. I think, four years ago. Are you guys seeing more grizzly bears yep. or is it pretty much the same? What's it like out your way? Um, it's really, it's, it's a strange deal, right? And a lot of the biologists can't figure out why, but 30 years ago, there is hardly a grizzly bear in this country. I mean, that's not very long ago, right? I've lived here no. now for 17 of them. And I would think the population doubled in 17 years. And going back 30 years, one of my moose guides, he's, you know, he's in his early 60s and he's guided here for 40 years. And he said back in the 
back in the 80s um, and in, into the 90s, he said, if you saw six grizzlies in an entire year of guiding, and that's just not fall season, we're talking spring season, uh, fishing all summer, backcountry uh, pack trips up in the mountains, and then um, guiding fishing in, in the fall on Chilco River, which is now, they figure there's well over 100 grizzlies on there. I mean, they, they would, he would see six in an entire year. You know, now I took my hunter and uh, my wife, Julie, who you know, um, down to Chilco River after we'd finished our hunt just to see if we could see some bears. And we stood in one spot and looked across the river and there's 22 bears. <laughs> it probably about a kilometer of, of, uh, of road, or I'm sorry, I guess it's, off the road. I could look up about a kilometer up the river and yeah. uh, we could count 22 bears. That's right where I'm working at that lodge right now. So we have run-ins like daily and the season actually, the salmon haven't started running yet. But uh, yeah, that's, you know, part of the problem isn't the amount of bears, but we have such a huge bear viewing community over there. We have four or five lodges that puts qu quite a few clients through. Um, watching watching the bears and, and most of the bear viewing is done in a two kilometer stretch of river so you put out eight or ten boats on the river all day and it, you know they, what ends up happening you go there it's all sows and cubs the cubs get used to being around people and um, it's really detrimental to the bears because they end up showing up in people's yards not not afraid of anybody and of course now they've been bear viewing for almost 20 years so now you're talking multiple generations of cubs raised on the river and it's it's terrible right i mean they yeah. really they they harass the first nations on their in their fishing camps um mm -hmm. the first nations kill a lot of bears far more than licensed hunting ever used to and it's more mostly to be blamed. I mean, you can put the blame right on on bear viewing. It's the most bizarre thing because they figure they're they're bear viewing. They're saying saving the bears, but they've created habituated bears. And it's um, fortunately our, our local um, band is they're kind of aware of it now. They're realizing like we got a problem, and it's a big problem, and and we're having to kill bears because of it. So we got to find a happy medium where we can bring the hunt back, but we can also do bear viewing. So we can gain respect back from the bears through hunting, uh, which would be done during a different season. It'd be a spring season. Yeah. You know, so they, they're, they're starting to realize, you know what, we, we, we do need to manage them, but we don't want to just shoot them and leave them. Right. We, there should be, if you, if you always put a dollar value attached to an animal, you're always going to make sure we have those animals in the future. Yeah. I mean, that's just the reality of it. If there's no value to the animal at all, doesn't matter whether it's to look at it or, or to hunt it. Um, nobody cares whether those are there for our next generation. You guys know that, yeah. you know, better than most. I mean, we, we do this for our kids and, and hopefully one day our grandkids, right? Just to be on these podcasts, to, to be involved in, in hunting in every aspect, to, to work on regulations with government, to, to do all that stuff. There's way more to it than what people think, right? Hunters do care and, and we do, uh, you know, it's because of us, I think that we're going to continue having all this wildlife. Without a doubt. And like you said, when you put value on something, we then want more of that animal or whatever it is. So, well, and how much just trickles down into conservation from hunters? For right? sure. It's 90 plus percent. Yeah. 
For sure. And that's what, af- after I left your, your place and seen how you manage the links, it, it sort of frustrated me with how Alberta does it. Um, you know, with the whole trapping thing, there's no hunting of links. So you'll have a trapper who's trapping, let's say 10 links. He's getting $35, $40 for those links in the last, last fur auction. So those links, they don't, they aren't worth much to him other than just, you know, him going, spending some time out in the bush and that's that. And so you have one guy enjoying all the perks of trapping these 10 links, or you could, you know, bring it into a hunting season and, you know, do something like you and and do some guiding and give some tags to residents and spread all these out. And now these animals will have much more value and we'll want the lynx around. You ask any hunter in Alberta, he doesn't give a shit about lynx because he's never going to be able to hunt them. I've told guys I went on a lynx hunt. There's the odd guy that's like, that's cool. But most guys are like, whatever, you know, I'll never have the chance. That animal doesn't mean anything to me. But the trappers, they used to, you know, you used to get, I've heard a guy saying you get three, four, five hundred $500 for lynx, you know, decades ago. And now they're pretty well worthless. But to a guide or, you know, an outfitter like yourself, you're getting several thousand dollars. So now these animals have value. You want those around. I see value in those animals because, you know, I want to hunt them. I want to pursue them. But around here, nobody can touch these links. You're lucky if you see them because every trapper is allowed pretty much unlimited amount of links and they're getting almost nothing for them. Um, so that's one thing that sort of opened my eyes when I left and I seen how British Columbia does it compared to how Alberta does it. And it, it frustrated me. I know we talked about it a few times on the podcast because I have guys at our tax shop here, they'll come in and we have a fur buyer's license and they will basically just give me the links cause they don't want to skin it or whatever. Right. Because it's, it's not it, even it, worth their It's gas. not even worth it for them, but they're just trapping them to trap them. Cause if they don't do it, well, if they don't fill some of their quotas, they might lose their trapping license. And it's, it's just a messy situation right now with um, how little these hides are worth. So I think they need to almost relook at it and bring some of these animals more, bring more value to these animals. So we, you know, appreciate them a little bit more. Yeah, there's no question about it. I, I, it's funny. I just had this conversation last month, every month I I have meetings with uh, our regional staff, biologists, regional managers, and around and even provincial and, and the province was actually, you know, I was getting some pushback about transplanting some links down to Washington state and, Oh, wow. You know, and, and the trappers were having, you know, they kind of had a bit of a hissy fit and, and they said, well, maybe we should think about going on quota for the outfitters and, you know, and limited LEH tags for the residents. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me, right? Yeah. I said, There's not many guys that know more about links. And I'm telling you, you guys are making a huge mistake. I said, you think about it. I mean... A one-on-one lynx hunt is I'm bringing almost 10,000 Canadian into the province. Yeah. It's a lot of money, a lot yeah. of money, new money that's coming in from other countries. Right. And I said, and then you look at that, how many links have to be killed by a trapper to generate recycled yeah. $10,000. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of links you got to kill. 
and a lot of skin in, and there's no market for it. You just flood the market. I said, on top of it, the rabbit cycle really is what gener generates a good mm -hmm. population or not. Yeah. You know, you look, you've hunted here, and we've we hardly hunted a bit of my guide area, and we're and there's plenty of links for us to hunt. And we could have easily have traveled, you know, to the far end and had a great time over there. And I haven't seen there there is one trapper that usually sets one or two link sets out a year, but that's it. And I've lived here 17 years, right? And he normally catches one a year. And yeah, the same guy says 1977, 78. He said he would kill eight links and eight links would pay for a new Toyota pickup truck. Yeah, exactly. You get 1100 bucks for, for a big knot and about a thousand bucks for a kitten. Yeah. The 11, eight links and you could buy a brand new ca cash. So he said everybody hunted or trapped links back then. Yeah. Cause he literally, even if you caught one or two, that was a big payday. Right. Mm -hmm. So you think about what a new pickup Toyota pickup truck is today. <laughs> How many, you know, what would, what would be the value of eight links? I mean, it'd have to be 10 grand a piece, but, or whatever, $7,000 yeah. a piece to pay for, to pay for a, uh, a new pickup truck. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, um, it is interesting and it's interesting how we still have trappers that don't like that. The fact that we're hunting them here in BC, we still have a bit of pushback and, you know, I stay not heavily involved, but I am involved with the BC trappers a little bit. And I know their, their president and, and what have you, and their executive, um, fully support trapping. I'm a trapper myself, right? Yeah, for sure. But when you start looking at economic value of animals, I mean, that's why we want to keep them on the ground, right? It's, it's, it's just not all about making a, a living. It's just, it's about respect for the animals and it's respect to keep the habitat as healthy as we could. You know, it's, um, you know, part of our moose decline is, is you can blame it directly on forest practices, right? I mean, they've logged and clear cut and so much of this land now that the wolf population just ex exploded. Mm -hmm. Now they're having to cull them because they're wiping out our caribou. I mean, it's just, uh, it's an endless cycle. Like once man gets involved um, and you get licensees that are pushing government to expand cutting permits and, you know, I mean, really in BC, a lot of our areas, they've harvested over 400% a year for 20 years, all due to the old, yeah, pine beetle yeah. infestation. I mean, and now you look at these big forest fires we're having, we're getting flooding now along Highway 20 here, driving out to my place. Yeah. We had, that highway was flooded in April. Well, why? Well, because the temperature went up, right? It was a, it was a warm stretch and there's no trees protecting the, the snow any longer. So, so it's it a huge effect. People don't realize what an effect it has because now the river that I'm, that I'm working on right now, you know, that was back in beginning of July, we had 16 degree Celsius temperature in that river. The Fraser river was 19 degrees. I mean, so now the sockeye, it's just, it grows nothing but bacteria and, and, and it's just, it's very unhealthy for the salmon. The salmon runs are depleting and you can see the difference in the quality of bull trout. You can see the difference in the size of the rainbow trouts and the quantity of them. And, um, you know, it all started with forest practices. And then all of a sudden you throw a couple, two or 3 million acres of, uh, or hectares, I guess it was of, of burnt forest. And then this year we're going through it again. Um, 
you know, we got to do a better job of managing it. And, and I think, you know, having hunters and hunters voices, um, at least working together, whether that's residents and guides and, um, first nations and everybody speaking as, as one group. I mean, it seems to be the only thing that gets government's attention Yeah, because it's, um, it's really it's the, the forest lights and seas that come in and, and, uh, whatever, cut a side deal or whatever they do to, to get the next permit. And, and they say, well, it's to taxpaying dollars. You know, we got to, we got to get guys to work. I said, yeah, but if you've logged everything, well, it's a renewable resource. Doug. It's a renewable resource. Okay. But it takes 135 years to grow an eight inch butt pine tree in my country. 135 years. Just think about that. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. You go to Florida, they reharvest every 18 years. Yeah. You know, and a much bigger tree. So you think about that. I mean, it, it's silly. It's just silliness. So you've wiped it out for generations to come. You know, people say, well, how come you, you know, all that logging? I mean, shouldn't that be really good lynx country? I said, yeah, in another 20 years. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, well, how old's that tree? Like a year or two old? No, that's like 17. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to bring more value and even so-called new value to these fur bearing animals, because I've talked to trappers and they're pissed about the logging. They do not like it because that holds your wolverine, that holds your fisher, that holds your lynx. As soon as you log that area, they're gone. They got to move out of there. But the right. average hunter who's hunting deer, who's hunting moose, they don't mind those cut blocks because they know they can cruise on by and they'll see something in there and they can shoot it. But if you brought value and you could allow hunting for these lynx, for wolverine and other fur-bearing animals, then you're going to have hunters who are going to say, hey, 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 let's keep this bush here. So I can take my kid out and we can go hunt a lynx one day, or we can go, you know, hunt a wolverine, or we can go chase more cougars. Um, But right now, the only voices that are really pushing back in the outdoor community that I've heard has been the trappers, because they do not want any of this, any of this logging. Um, But yeah, a lot of hunters I talk to, they're like, you know what, I'm okay with it as long as they don't take it all. Well, they it's don't, access, right? It's, it's access. access to a lot of people. You're giving a lot of access. And that's a very shallow, like, look at it, right? Yeah, but a lot of guys, they they know nothing about the fact that this is pushing the fishers, pushing the, the wolverine and the lynx right out of that area completely, but the trappers are the only ones who are really talking about it. But if you brought lynx hunting in or brought wolverine hunting in, you're now bringing a new value to these. You now have outfitters who want to protect this resource. You have hunters who want to pursue this resource. Um, then you got a little more pushback on uh, on these types of things because our our community here that we live in it's uh, you know it's a logging community that's it's going around north of town, south, east, west, all over the place. Um, and yeah, you know, um, you just you wouldn't really know the havoc it causes until you talk to a trapper or until you. Um, you actually head back into some of these old cut blocks. I've been in cut blocks that are 25 years old and they are an absolute disaster, a total mess, you know, still piles of wood everywhere, stumps everywhere. And you weren't having really any trees. The animals back. don't even want to walk. And the it. animals don't even know they'll avoid it. They'll skirt the edges. Um, Absolutely. yeah, it's messy. No, no, it's, uh, it, it's really chaps my rear end and I boy I tell you when these guys when I see what goes on and it it doesn't stop you know we're running out of timber and you still get the you know when our NDP government came in 
we actually thought as outfitters that maybe they could change the forest practices, right? Yeah. They said they would until they got in and they actually did the math and they realized how many taxpayers are paying yeah. into the system that work in forestry. And they were going behind everybody's back trying to cut deals with regional managers to, to open up more area and, and go, you know, way above their allowable cuts. And I mean, it was, Oh, you know, they want to create jobs in rural BC because nobody in rural BC votes for them. Yeah. So they want votes. They, so they want to create jobs. They want to open up some of the mills that closed down and they want to be able to take credit for it. They, they don't give a rip about the lynx, the moose, the deer, the bears, the wolves. I mean, it, you know, that's just a sad reality and politics has got to be taken out of wildlife management yeah it's got to be taken out of forest practices you know end of story i mean there's if we're going to have this another century from now if we're going to have what we have today it you know it's pretty imperative that things change quick you know i can see i can see the change and just anything i mean you name it whether it's our goats or it's our uh, it's our moose right i mean it's we have to battle and battle and battle to bring them back yeah. You know, I'm used to see moose everywhere here in the 90s. You know, and once the pine beetle started um, being harvested, and it wasn't not, not that they're even harvesting the pine beetle, they harvest, you know, hundreds of hectares around of yeah. dead trees. They just took everything. And what you've done is you've created really good spring bear habitat, right? Mm -hmm. Because before a pine forest doesn't feed anything, yeah. nothing lives in a mature pine forest. Sure, along the meadows and this and that, but just generally in a jack pine forest, not a whole lot just lives there. It's pretty sparse. Not a lot of vegetation. Berries don't grow. You knock it down, all of a sudden berries grow and grass grows. They reseed the roads with alfalfa and clover and whatever. And I mean, bears love that. And I, I swear this is why we've had this explosion of grizzlies the last 20 years. We've got this great habitat now all over the place where before it used to just be kind of the agricultural corridors and, and you know, maybe the odd logging road um, would be some good habitat. But now we've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of hectares of, of good habitat now. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately, it seems to be too good a habitat for bears and the bears are going through the roof. And of course they hammer on the, on the ungulates, um, you know, especially during calving season. You know, you want to find grizzlies, go look in their moose calving areas, right? That's where they are in the spring. There's always a couple cruising, the, cruising those areas and chowing down. And it's, um, it, it's a, it's a tough way to tough way for a deer or moose to make a living now, you know? Yeah. Without a doubt. And that's one thing they say, um, you know, year after year, it doesn't really matter how much forestry work they do or oil work they do or how much hunting there is the black bear population is so versatile they always seem to you know increase their numbers or stay stable um but yeah these cut blocks and more access that's just even better for them you know better feed um they produce more than as well and uh yeah that's and but the, then you have an imbalance right then you have more grizzly bears and more black bears than you do um you know compared to caribou and moose and everything else like you said um but uh yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully something changes and, and it slows down a little bit because it's something that really frustrates me. The whole, um, you know, just major clear cutting and with the, the price of wood, how high it went not long ago, um, the mills, they had they had stockpiles 
Uh, they had old cut blocks. They just used as stockpiles outside of town here. It was insane and just cutting as much as they can. But uh, yeah, you know, it is what it is. Now let's jump on to a new topic. Um, you're super passionate about the Wounded Warriors in Action Foundation. I know we talked about it a ton when I was there with you. Um, you've done several hunts with these guys. I know you filmed a few for TV, I believe, as well. Um, tell me a little bit more about the foundation, how you got involved with it, and uh, when it started or when you started working with them and uh, what you guys did, how everything panned out there. Yeah, great topic. And like you said, I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, I've made just a ton of good friends from uh, from the hunts I've done here. I, I think probably about 12 years ago, started taking out some Purple Heart recipients, which are wounded in action soldiers. You have to be actually wounded during combat. Okay. Uh, to to re receive that medal. And... Yeah, anyhow, I, I, I since have become very good friends with the founder who himself, um, he was actually, um, he was a ranger, U.S. ranger, uh, re retired as a lieutenant colonel, um, 20 years, special forces, great guy, become very good friends with him. He was never wounded, but he's put together this outstanding foundation that um, really takes Purple Heart recipients and gets them back out in the woods and on the lakes and in the rivers fishing. And it's cause when these guys come back and they're, and some of these guys are quite badly injured. Some guys aren't, you know, one of my good friends, I mean, you got shot in the pinky, right? Hmm. Doesn't think like much of a big deal, but you know, I mean, it, uh, it is a big deal. I mean, he got shot in the pinky while he was defending the helicopter in Black Hawk down. Right. Wow. So we saw a lot of pretty gruesome things. Um, so a lot of it, just not the physical stuff. It's the other things that go with it. Um, you know, anyways, we'll, you meet a lot of great guys. You, you mm -hmm. do a lot of every year I, I would take two guys out and we would uh, usually take them on a bear hunt. And then if I had a cancellation of a different type of hunt, uh, last minute cancellation, which I'd been paid in full, I would call up John and he would send me up a, um, a wounded warrior vet to, to come up and do that hunt with me. Right. I would donate it to them and nice. do that. I figured I'd been paid for it. Anyhow, the least I could do is, is help change somebody's life or help their, you know, maybe not change your life, but maybe help them. Maybe, maybe that guy who happens to be struggling right now. Right. You know, and it, the reason I got into it was because you always hear about how many soldiers are, are committing suicide, you mm -hmm. know, and it's um, a lot of it is because they don't have a support group. They feel alone. They don't feel like they're part of a team anymore. They don't, you know, it's just a different, you know, you're, you're trained to do one thing and then all of a sudden you can't do your job anymore. And a lot of these guys had plans of being career soldiers. Right. And then they got wounded and, you know, can no longer serve. Um, and some of these guys are wounded to the point where they can't function at a regular job and they don't have the education to do a desk job. And, so they get into a pretty, they can get in, get into a pretty bad way, pretty bad yeah. state. Um, I just thought I could do something. I know how much, you know, I can see the smiles in everybody's faces, just they're my regular hunters, when you give them a new experience, right? Even an old experience, you know, you get a guy that's hunted moose or bears or whatever, dozens of times. I'm like, well, you guys do it. I mean, yeah. you know, you go out and you, you hunt a great bear or a great moose or a great elk or deer or whatever, or take your kids out and shoot a grouse. 
I mean, you, you can't wipe the smiles off your face, right? No. So, uh, yeah, and you've seen where we live. I mean, it's pretty spectacular country. It's some of the most beautiful country I've, I've seen myself. And um, to have these guys that come from wherever, the deep south, back east, whatever, you know, it's very unique. Maybe they, they may have been in Alaska. They may have served there. They may have been to Colorado. But to come here and actually hunt and share our family, I guess. I mean, we really, that's, our kids were, were raised all around um, this. I mean, my son would still come back when on his days off, if this hunt was going on and come back to help. Right. I mean, he was, nice. yeah, it's, it's great because, you know, I mean, we had a double amputee um, leg amputee and we're chasing bears with dogs. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and he literally held on to my son's shoulders and walked in, I don't know, a couple kilometers Wow. down. I mean, you know, to, and killed a tremendous bear. Um, but he, he couldn't have done that without Colton being there to, to give him a hand. Right. Um, it's kind of, I guess, I guess you create a bond with these guys. You spend a week with them, you know, they, some guys tell you they're inner demons, right. It's, um, yeah. stuff they don't, they don't really, they don't talk to their families about it. They don't talk to their wives. Um, but some reason, somehow you get involved and you start hunting and you get out in the outdoors, you spend a lot of time with somebody, you create a bond that's not, it's hard to replace. Like, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, my buddies on my hockey team. Oh yeah, it's a little different. Yeah. You know, I don't know what it is. I can't really nail it down, but, um, and the stories that you hear from these guys, I mean, just want, you know, you wish that you could just do this full time and take these guys out, right? It does make a difference. And I, I believe Wounded Warriors and Action Foundation, they have well over a thousand uh, wounded vets that actually are members. And they try, they take as many as, they try to take about 500 guys out a year on some Holy sort of smokes. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, they're nonprofit. Yeah. Um, you know, I always said to John, I said, man, John, you're going to, this is going to bankrupt you one day, you know, like, cause he puts every last dime into it himself. Right. It took years and years and years to, so it would carry itself. And, um, but he just cares so much about those guys that, uh, wow. he really, you know, he just, it, he feels like he's had a blessed life and he wants to share it with him. And he understands the value of, of friendship and camaraderie over the campfire and, and that sort of thing. And, and it's a little different in my setting because I bring two guys in at a time. A lot of these, they'll go to duck camp or they'll go to this walleye or whatever they're doing. There might be eight or 10 of them in, right? Yeah. And all their expenses are paid. They get travel, they get everything. They get um, got some tremendous hosts that come here, you know, that host these guys year after year. And it's um, it's cool that way. It is, it's really cool to see um, – the guys that actually do it for the right reason, right? You obviously get the odd guy that wants to get his name in lights. He did something great. And then you never hear the rest of it, right? You never see yeah. him again. You never host another hunt, never does anything. Yeah. Um, you get a few people like that. I don't know why they do it, but uh, you know, for us and my family, I mean, once you've done it once, like I say, you, you wish your whole hunt season was made up of these guys. Cause you, yeah. you do, you do end up, growing very fond of them and, and uh, caring about every one of them. And even the guys you haven't met, right. You see what's gone on in Afghanistan. And I mean, I know a lot of guys that were wounded in Afghanistan and what's happened the last two weeks with the Taliban taking over mm -hmm. the entire country again. Those guys are crushed. I mean, they're heartbroken. 
you know, they've gone there, they've lost friends, they've lost limbs, they've lost, you know, family members, you know, for, and to them, they look at it as nothing. Yeah. You know, for, for, for no reason, you know, and uh, it's a tough pill to swallow. I think, you know, when you look at the leg that you're missing or the hand or, you know, or the head trauma or whatever, just the PTSD. Right. I mean, these guys go through some pretty, pretty remarkable uh, difficulties. You know, it's not like you and I, and Mm -hmm. we, we didn't have to, we didn't have to go to war. You know, I don't know about your dad, but my dad didn't have to go to war. My kid hasn't had to go to war. And why? Well, because guys like that yeah, put their hand up and volunteer, right? Yeah, just a, a different level of grateful when they come on, you know, a hunt like yours or, or anyone really. But uh, and then to have a, a smaller setting, smaller camp, like you said, two hunters, you know, three or four guys in the in the lodge. Um, it's a little more personal and uh yeah, no, it's pretty special. Something special you guys are doing for sure. And kudos to the guy who's managing and running it all. I couldn't imagine all the work he must. Obviously, um, it runs him. You know, it's probably what keeps him motivated to to do more. Just hearing these stories and and seeing the joy these guys get out of it. Yeah, the amazing thing about it, and and I don't think very many people or anybody really knows this, but out of all their registered members that have been there, they started in two thousand seven. Um, not one of their guys has committed suicide. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Holy smokes. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. I had had zero idea about that. They actually have a a pretty impressive program going of their own now every year. Maybe it's every two years, but I believe they're trying every year. They're actually putting uh, a guide school together for their guys. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's a two or three week course and it's, I mean, they do everything from fly fishing to, to bird dogging to, you know, skinning to trapping. They do this whole thing and uh, they, I believe it's two or three weeks and then they bring in eight or 10 guys and they have a whole pile of instructors come through and then they certify all those guides. And what they done is basically created another way for them to expand their programs. Now they can send these mentors to help out a guy like me. So maybe next year I could take four guys, right. Or, or they could help out with, you know, whatever the deal is, he's, he's now a, an asset to me to help out. I'm probably a bad example, but you know, you maybe go in a duck blind, you go to a duck blind and, and you maybe want, there's 20 guys. Exactly. You got got to know what to do. You got to know how to hunt ducks. You got to be able to do that. And, and uh, it's a fantastic program. I've, number of the guys that have been here have been um in leadership i guess and this was always a very prized hunt and i always told john i said you know john you should take your hardest working guys the guys that volunteer the most time yeah and maybe maybe send them here right yeah i mean because they may never maybe never going to get an opportunity like this you know you're on a military disability pension chances are you're not gonna be able to buy a hunt like this no you know so yeah. it just kind of throws him a bit of a bone and and um you know fortunately you know john has a lot of trust in me so he doesn't necessarily have to send one of these mentors along mm-hmm. um but for the most part they go on every trip right it just it just kind of keep tabs on new guys you don't know what the new guys are like and you know i mean ptsd is a real thing yeah um, it can be dangerous too right 
so they know they know the ins and outs and what to look for and how to you know talk to guys and you know i've had soldiers you know we're 10 minutes down the road and he's like holy I didn't, I didn't, eat, didn't eat my pill. I didn't take my pill this morning. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll get it at lunch. Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. We need to go get my pill. Yeah. Like we need it now. And I'm like, Oh boy, <laughs> you know, you can't get back. Cause you don't know what's going through their heads. Right. No. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. No it. doubt. Unreal. Yeah, it, it's great. I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, I always tell people, man, if you're going to donate to a cause, I said, that is, I mean, it's to me, it's one of the number one ran places in, in there or foundations, um, especially around the outdoors. I mean, it's really phenomenal. Every year they're in the top. Um, I think they run their, their administration and under 10%, their administration. Wow. Plus. I mean, every That's year they get incredible. an award from the US, the, the U.S. government for, for running such a frugal foundation, right? Yeah. Um, and it makes a difference. You know, anybody listening that Wounded Warriors and Action Foundation, man, help support John and help support these uh, wounded vets. It, uh, it means a lot. Mm-hmm. Right so, on, right on. Well, I know you, Eric, you told me a few stories of some vets <laughs> that you've, you've guided in the past. Yeah. And it's just incredible the stories that these guys tell. And just to think, um, just to try and put your place in, in their situation in some of these different moments, it's, it's mind boggling. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, they're some of the best, best people you ever meet, right? Yeah. They've gone through for lack of better words, they've gone through some shit yeah. and, uh, and they've seen some stuff and, and like, like Doug was saying, they're so grateful to be out there yeah. and to have that team, that team mentality, that team aspect. Um, you know, I've only taken a handful of, of veterans and I, I'm not sure if any of them actually were through the foundation. Um, but they're always, you know, they're always willing to help. They want to know what's next. Yeah. Right. Like they're. Doesn't they're, matter how many legs or how many arms right. they have. It yeah. doesn't matter if, if they've got a prosthetic or, or, or if they're, they've got other issues, you yeah. know, they're just, they're always so happy to be out there. And it's, it's, I think it's like another happy place, right? It's, it's giving back. And the best thing, like he said, is just giving back to them. Yeah. Being able to facilitate stuff like that. I tell you, I tell you a quick couple stories they're, they're kind of funny i think you're i think anybody listening would think they're kind of kind of interesting but i had one fella it was the first day of his hunt and we got onto this very big bear i didn't know how big it was until he come out of the tree and i went and checked the tree and i could see how wide his paw marks were they were huge and i thought oh. i told the guy i said you ever been bear hunting before he says i've never seen a bear i said man if we can get this <laughs> thing caught it's gonna be big <clears throat> so sure enough the dogs get a bait up in a nasty swamp nasty swamp down the hill into the swamp we get just you know it was going to be whether probably a 20 percent chance we're going to get a shot at this bear bait up on the ground and this guy's missing a leg right so we get to this area in the swamp we got to go under these spruce trees and so i go under and you know we're literally knee deep in mud and he's like sir sir can you can you stop for a second i said yeah what's up he says i lost my leg (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no he says he says i gotta get my leg back <laughs> so anyhow gets a leg and gets it on and, the, and meanwhile the bear took off and went in tree just above there and and anyhow he gets up there and there's this monster bear i mean he squared eight foot right actually seven foot eleven he squared wow. huge bear one of the biggest bears i've ever killed and he's standing broadside on this big fur limb and he says well sir is that big enough to shoot <laughs> said justin i said that'll be the biggest bear to die here in years like it yeah. is that big 
you know, and, and I just thought that was a, quite, I mean, it's defining, right? Hey, sir, can you stop? Yeah. I just lost my leg, right? As we're yeah. trying to get to this bear through this. I mean, I could have jumped over all the trees. I could have climbed through, but I'm trying to find him away because he can't necessarily do it with his prosthetic. And so it just made it that much more difficult, right? And and the other kind of good story was, uh, <clears throat> who had become a good friend of mine, David, but um, he was a ranger. And then the other guy, Gabe, he was he was uh, Army Infantry. And we got onto this mean bear and Oscar was the last dog on that bear. Every, every dog had quit. It was a super hot day and little Oscar, wow. he stayed on that bear for hours and the rest of the dog just overheated and, and they have to pick him up. They'd be down to the lake cooling off. Right. Yeah. So finally we, we get to this spot and, and we almost get the crack of this bear crossing the road and Oscar's the only dog and, and, the bear turns, he sees us, smells us, does whatever. He turns, doesn't come across. And I said, okay, guys, we got to get to this chain of meadows and we're going to have to run. Like we're going to park and we're going to run. And this is going to be our only crack of this bear. Cause we, we, I mean, poor old Oscar, he's there by himself <clears throat> and he's been on it for hours. And so we're running. Well, you can imagine I'm not in the greatest shape, you know, <clears throat> these guys, they, I mean, they haven't been active duty for a few years either. So I'm sure they're not in the greatest shape either. And so we're hauling ass. And we get all the way to this meadow and sure enough, here comes Oscar. He's right on the rear end of this bear, right? And the bear's just walking. And I look over and I said to David, I, the, it was his shot. And I, I said, you know, you got him? He said, yes, sir. I said, take him. He smokes his bear, but he hits him a little behind, drops the bear. And the bear's spinning around, but he's, he can't go over, he can't go anywhere. But anyhow, Oscar's nailing him and the bear's roaring. And I said, let's go. And we run, right. It's about 70, 80 yards. We run in there and kill this bear from six feet. Right. And I said, Oscar, and Oscar stops. I said, when I say Oscar, you shoot. Right. So anyhow, he shoots bear dead. And those two looked at each other and they said, do you remember the first time when you're in Iraq and you get shot at and you start chasing one of these guys down in the alleys and you think you're going into an ambush? And he's the Gabe. He says, "Oh, absolutely! I can't never forget that first time." He says, "This was worse." <laughs> said, what were you doing? He said, "We just ran into a wounded bear, like point blank." Yeah. And I said, "Guys, you need to take a second look. The bear didn't have a gun." Yeah. You know, I mean, that's our mentality, right? I'm yeah, around yeah. it so much, and maybe too complacent, but I'm looking at it, going, "Man, it wasn't shooting at me, like." Yeah. <laughs> you know, but for them, it, they figure this was one of the most intense things they've ever seen, right? And it's just a 300-pound animal running with a jaw and claws. And... Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, when you're around them daily and... Yeah, I know, yeah. You know, like, you know I mean, literally, I, I they come out of a tree, I run in there and kick them in the ass and send them back up, right? Yeah. These guys just about, they figure I'm going to get eaten every time. But it, it, it's just different. I mean, you look at those those... I'll never forget those stories, right? I mean, I got a lot of stories. I mean, every story is a bit of an adventure with those guys. You know, the first one I did, the guy was 24 years in the military. He was a ranger. <clears throat> three three months left before retirement and got out. They were checking a bunch of highway in Afghanistan. And he thought something was a little haywire. So he got out and they checked everything, looked for IEDs got back in, strapped himself in, the truck didn't roll two feet and boom, they, were, they rolled over an IED that was buried. It was buried prior to the US military paving the highway. 
Oh, wow. Uh, and this was what was getting a lot of guys. They, were, this, they figured it was three to 400 pounds of explosives under the highway. Holy deep shit. enough down that they can't, that they can't actually detect it. it. Yeah. So he ended up losing 30% of his soft tissue. <clears throat> a good friend of ours. We visit him when we travel, you know, yeah. to, you know, still to this day, great guy. Uh, you know, and here he is a wheelchair bound the rest of his life. And, and he Jeez. was the first guy that ever, that ever came, you know, and here he is three months shy of retirement and, and uh, this happens. And anyhow, we, we, he came, he was a very first hunter I had and I contacted action track wheelchair out of the States <clears throat> that had electric tracked wheelchairs and to help, you know, get this guy around. Anyhow, he was so excited. I mean, he was so excited. They, they shipped one up. We actually used it for the hunt and, and we actually televised it. It was a televised hunt that we did and unbelievable. I mean, the, I think it was the first day. It might've been the second day. Anyhow, he ended up killing a really nice six and a half, six foot eight, something like that, black bear. And and we, we actually stocked it. We didn't use dogs. We actually stocked it with this action track wheelchair. Wow. That's awesome. No road and just down into the edge of the meadow. And, and he made a great shot and just dumped it in his tracks, you know, and yeah what uh, i was visiting him in florida and uh and he's got this bear mounted or rugged out i guess but like literally on his wall of his bedroom right he said man he said this is one of the best memories ever yeah you know and uh so proud to be able to introduce me and julie and my daughter to to his his kids and his wife right yeah it was it was i mean it meant so much to those guys it's unbelievable so yeah good good part of guiding to have that opportunity to share Absolutely. what we do it's uh it's one thing to share it with with regular customers but when you get that opportunity i'd highly recommend any other outfitters yeah. you know. yeah one of my favorite moments outfitting guiding actually and i've been guiding only a fraction of the time you have but i had a fellow a few years ago that was in uh we were doing a spot and stock black bear hunt and he was a special forces guy and uh, they got hit, his team got hit with some sort of chemical weapon. And it was, uh, it was just a mission gone real bad. They lost half their team. Then the rest of the guys, most of them were in the hospital for like 18 months and two years. And uh, on the first day, we hunted most of the evening and down into the last couple hours of the night. And we came on this really, really nice, like cinnamon phase black bear. And he was standing up on an anthill in the back of a cup block. And he looked, he looked just like a grizzly, like just the way he was standing. He had gold tip fur. And so I got the guy all lined out on the bear, standing broadside. It's just eating, has no idea we're there. And I said, just wait, don't pull the trigger. Be totally ready. I just have to make sure once it steps off, I can see that flat back. And or or he has to look at me so I can see his head really good. And so I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And he's like, Can I shoot? Can I shoot? And I'm telling him, no, hold on. And like, I can hear him like vibrate. Yeah. Right? He's ready to just dump this bear. And finally the bear made a move and he looked at me and I could see his, you know, I could see his black bear yeah. head and he cracked it, cracked a shot off. Looked like a good hit. We watched the bear run in. I was pretty sure I seen it tumble. So we gave it a few minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes or whatever. And he's like really pumped, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're expecting the bear to be right in there. We walked up. And uh, I should mention this guy's a smoker. He already had a few smokes before we had gotten to the bear, right? Just out of excitement. I started looking for blood. There's no blood right where he was standing, <laughs> oh, no. right? 
So I'm looking and I'm looking. I'm like, well, I'm like 95% sure he pummeled this bear. Yeah. And he said, you find anything? You find anything? I said, no, just, you know, start walking that way. See if you can see him in the trees. And I'll just try and get on the actual blood. And he's walking. And as he's every five steps, he's lighting a new cigarette. Because we're, we're like 10 minutes deep into this search. Yeah. Right? We haven't quite found Feels it. like an hour. For him, absolutely. Well, for me, I don't like, especially with bears, they don't bleed. I don't like to overstep the blood. No. So I, before I even go wander off, I try and find that blood. So about 10, 15 minutes go by and I'm, and then I, I'm like on blood. I said, Oh, I got blood We're right here. And then, you know, 20 yards in the bush, this bear is there laying on the ground. He walks up to me. We see the bear. He's all happy. Does, you know, gets a look at it and everything. He's like, man, I was this close to wrapping my gun around a tree. <laughs> and so, you know, it was all good. We took some good photos. We got back to camp and it was the first day of the six day hunt. And, uh, you know, he's still got another bear tag. And he sits down at dinner with everybody. And he said, you know, when we got hit, when we got hit with that chemical attack, he said, the doctors told me I wouldn't live till my 50th birthday. He said, today is my 50th birthday. Holy fuck. He said, I couldn't, have, I couldn't have spent it any better place than, you know, in Northern Alberta hunting bears. That's incredible. Oh, there's the, the camp cook missing yeah. those meals. <laughs> that apple dumpling there you go <laughs> fan favorite absolutely yeah, yeah that's incredible it. you know in stories like that you see so many different people being a, yeah. an outfitter it's it's absolutely incredible yeah very, i'll never I'll never cool. forget that hunt yeah um so doug you know hunting season it's pretty well here um do you have any spots available are you looking to fill any spots what's what's it looking like for you? Are you taking on any more hunters or what's going on with Skinner Creek? Yeah, I got to probably, a, I'll probably take two or three more lynx hunters. I think this year, um, taking about half what I had last year. Cause I did lose a little bit of my area. So um, when does that season start? Starts November 15th. I usually start around the 20th of November. I got a, a couple of spots I could, I could do, uh, end of end of November, kind of last week of November, and then uh, I actually just had one spot open up after right after Christmas. So it's, it starts like the twenty eighth. Um, yeah, the guys ended up had a conflict with his family. I think his kids had something something going on, but yeah, no, there's a couple spots left for that. Um, just taking ten hunters out this year. That's usually about half what I normally take. But uh, yeah, no, it's good. I, I do have one moose spot. I guess I'd probably do the last two weeks of October if somebody was looking for a moose. But other than that, I you know I think I'm pretty much full up for for now until next spring, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And anyone listening or watching, um, check out Skinner Creek Hunts on Instagram and Facebook um your web page information is on there as well there's phone numbers on there so there's uh they can get a hold of you through there and um yeah so should be good wishing you all the best this hunting season are you are you going to get out for yourself or or are you just uh living through your clients uh i might actually go up to my camp up in the alpine here and look for a mule deer for a day or two nice uh, beginning of September, something like that, because I, I had these guys I wanted to come beginning of September to go bear hunt, but they they couldn't. I'm not sure who that would have been. But... <laughs> Anyhow, oh, he's heard uh, all about it. I, I'm frustrated. I like 
I told you I wanted to. And then I actually sat down and looked at my calendar and it just, oh man, I, I wish I'm wishing I could, but in. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, everybody's busy, right? And so yeah. I, I got a lot going on in September, um, but I'm going to try to get up for do a little bit. Nice. And of course, and of course in my, any spare time, bear season opens up. So if I got spare time, I'm, I'm, I'm always taking my dogs out. Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, summertime has been pretty boring for them. Um, you know, we did run one bear problem bear the other day, but I mean, when they're used to catching something every day or every two days and they don't, they get out for a run once a week now. Yeah. Uh, they're itching to go. Let's just say they they're ready to go. And there's seems to be plenty of bears around. So we'll, mm -hmm. uh, will be good because most of the grizzlies head over the Fraser or over to Choco River to, to fish. So there won't be quite as many of this yeah. around this time of year. So, cause there's not a black bear left on the river. I mean, they can't go there without. Yeah. They just take it over. Yeah. Yeah. 30 years ago, you'd see nothing but black bears. Now you won't see a black bear. Yeah. You know, yeah. talking to the biologists, they said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to tag nine grizzlies on the river this, this fall and do some studies. And we're going to tag six black bears on the river. I said, which river? Well, of course, Choco River. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, good you luck finding them black bears. You won't. Yeah, you could see the guys that run boats every day for on the river for for the lodges, right? Yeah. If they see one in an entire season now. Wow. Yeah, where they would see a hundred a day. Yeah. Thirty years ago, you know, they'd be everywhere. So I'm like, yeah, good luck getting that. I don't know where you're gonna yeah. tag six black bears along that river because you're not gonna find them. You know, and it, it's funny how the bears, the grizzlies actually affect the black bear population because they, they take away all the prime food source. People think that they kill, they just run around killing black bears. Well, they do, they can, but not yeah. often. Yeah. But what they do is they, 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 they don't necessarily starve them out, but they can take the food source away so that the sows aren't having as many cubs or not having cubs at all because they can't have cubs unless they go into the winter with enough fat. So, so now you need a huge barrier to, to see cubs the next year, newborns. Oh, I see. So if you had a terrible barrier, you won't see a cub. Wow. A black bear cub. Yeah. Yet, yeah. Yet grizzlies all have two, three, four cubs. Yeah. And they're everywhere. The cubs are absolutely everywhere, you know? So, so oh. people don't realize it's not the fact that they're killing the bears. It's the fact that they're starving them out to the point where they're not reproducing at the mm -hmm. same rate as they used to, hmm. you know, and they're also having to travel farther and they're pushing out into that outskirt areas that didn't hold really good bears before. Uh, so, so the population probably isn't down, but you just kind of got to look a little farther sometimes um, yeah. for those good bears. But anyhow, it's good. It's, uh, awesome. it's, it's always great talking to, to guys like yourself that have the same passion. So yeah, no, we appreciate it big time. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And we'll have to do this again before I come see you next. Hopefully I can uh, we can plan something for the spring. But um, yeah, all the best this hunting season. And uh, yeah, it was good chatting with you. Nice to see you again. You know, I, I had an absolute blast um, out your way. Just a ton of fun. And so those, we, we killed two links on that hunt. And we actually, we, we did two episodes. We got a ton of footage and uh, two great episodes. They're going to premiere here in October. So it's episode seven and episode eight of this season. Um, so anyone watching or listening, watch for our two links hunts at Doug's uh, outfit. 
we had a ton of fun and um, we got some great cats. So, so thanks again, Doug. We appreciate it big time, man. And uh, yeah, all the best. Great on. Thanks for having me. Good being here. We'll meet again one day. I'm sure, buddy. Yes, for sure. Cheers. Take care, guys. Yeah. You bet. Today's podcast is brought to you by Smith Game Calls. Go to smithgamecalls.ca and check out their wide variety of game calls, all handmade right here in Alberta. This spring, I've set a goal to kill a bear and call one in with a diaphragm call by Smith Game Calls. So that's my game plan. I'm going to get one of their predator diaphragm calls. Um, I've practiced quite a bit already with a few different ones and see if we can call a bear in and take one down with, uh, with a rifle. It's going to be a lot of fun. Going to film it all with the Tacticam. So yeah, stay tuned. And as per you guys, check out smithgamecalls.ca and use promo code non-typical for 15% off each and every call on their webpage. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Tacticam. Right here in my hands, I got the Tacticam 5.0 Ultra HD sporting camera. This thing is eight times zoom, ultra HD. It shoots in 4K, 2.7K, and of course 1080p. Um, it's got fantastic image stabilization, Wi-Fi hookup to your phone, customizable uh, button pressing, and of course it's weatherproof, waterproof, all that good stuff. Go to tacticam.com for all your self-filming. Share your hunt needs. T-Rex knives. Local and handcrafted knives built right here in Alberta, Canada. Our hunting knives, fillet knives, and kitchen knives here at the T-Rack shop are custom built for each individual. We take great pride in our craftsmanship and produce an outstanding product made from high quality steel and finished with your choice from a large selection of handle material. Find us at Trax Knives on Instagram and Facebook, on the web at www.traxknives.com, or contact Joe at 780-831-5273 or email tracksknives at gmail.com to place your custom order from the T-Rack shop. You will not be disappointed. This non-typical nation podcast is brought to you by Old Smokes Coffee. Crafted coffee for the courageous. And that, folks, is the man, the myth, the legend... Tim Sanford with Old Smokes Coffee. Remember, use promo code non-typical at oldsmokescoffee.com.